the scriptures today, uh, believe it or not, they do overlap and they interconnect with each other in that way. Experiments have been done, I think some of you know this, um, where speech, how does it affect reality? Uh, in Japan, for years, they've known this. You talk to water, they've been doing this, and something changes in the, in the actual cellular makeup of the water, just talking to it. So imagine then when we pray over holy water, for example. Uh, I think we need to understand that words are not simply something that affects us emotionally, which they do, but something that, that speaks to reality and actually can point to and uncover that reality. So when Paul talks about the word is near you, even in your mouth, that's very important. And, and that's why, is it, is it the word of God? Is it a word that gives hope? Is it a word that gives encouragement? Is it a word that brings light uh, to someone? And that's important because we live in a world that's so negative about everything. So negative about everything. It's interesting, uh, the idea of faith. And I think about this for our kids and, and, and grandchildren. Uh, you know, you're, you're taught to put God to the side. You know, he's just a, at best a compartment in your life. He's not the main thing. But put your trust in, in this world. And it's interesting, right? The rate of anxiety, the rate of suicide among young people is incredible. Because the world can't offer you and us hope. There is no hope. What? Your job? That's nice, but what does that mean? Does that define who we are and the meaning of our life? Does the possessions, do the, even the things or the, that we like, and even some of our friends, I mean, if, if any relationship that's healthy points to something outside of the relationship. In, in the wedding service of the church, I always love this, uh, I always tell uh, a man and a woman when they come to get married, this isn't about you when we do the service. This is about Christ. And just like when I was ordained a priest, it wasn't really about me. It was about Christ and manifesting his priesthood. So in the prayers of the service, one of the things that's asked for the bride and groom is to, for the Lord to provide for them that they may provide for those who are in need. And I say that because we do live in a world that gets very selfish. You know, the idea of the American dream is for me, for me, for me. And maybe if I have a couple of bucks left over, I'll, I'll, I'll give them, throw them out to some guy, you know, uh, who's in the street or something like that. But that's not reality, okay? I, I remember years ago, this is before I was ordained, when we were living uh, in Colorado, and uh, I was working, if you will, trying to do my own business, our own business. We were, and uh, I'd go from office to office. And I met this one girl uh, who would talk to me. They were, newly, they were married, like, I found out she was married five years and so on and so forth. And just, I, you know, because I felt I got to know her a little bit, I said, so when were you guys planning to try to have children? Well, she says, oh, God, we're not going to do that. And I said, you're not going to try? I, I said, why? I'm just curious. She said, well, having children, it'll ruin our lifestyle. We just want to have fun, travel, and everything else. And besides, you know, having a baby, that'll ruin my figure and all that kind of stuff. 
And I'm sitting there going, really? Really? So life's all about me and what I want. And I wanted to tell her that, you know what? You could get all the Botox from the undertaker down the street to try to look good, but you know, it's going to still end at some point. And again, I think you all know me well enough to know. I'm not saying we can't enjoy ourselves and have fun or do things, but if that's all there is to life, that's pretty pathetic. It's, it's pretty pathetic. Now, the thing is not only what we say, but is what we say true? And there is no greater reality of truth than the gospel. And is that what guides our life and the lens through which we look at things and speak about things and frame things? You know, it's very easy to, to, to hear the news, to hear politicians of both sides who go crazy and so on and so forth um, and, and think this is, this is how we should view life. And for many, it has become the reality. As we push God to the side, we expect these other institutions to save us. They're not going to. They're not going to. They're not going to. Like I said, look at what's happening with, with you know, millennials with Generation Z and all that kind of stuff. It's very scary. It's very scary. And, and you're being encouraged to just go with whatever you feel. It doesn't have to have anything to do with any reality. And here's the interesting part, is that, as I mentioned, and marriage therapists will tell you, for a mar- part of the way a marriage succeeds is not only the couple looking at each other, they have to look at something together beyond themselves. If they can't see anything beyond themselves, they're going to implode at some point. Well, now, what do you look at? Politics? Getting a house? I mean, those aren't, you know, I'm not saying that some things are bad here, but you see what I'm saying? Those have limitations. We know that sometimes the thing we desired so much and desire so much, the possession, and we get it, and then after we get it, it's like, eh, right? <laughs> so what is it that colors reality? Because we are living in a world that, in the name of, quote, unquote, not judging anyone, we can't critique anything. You know, we, we, have a, we have now people saying there is no right and wrong, good and good or bad, or blah, blah, blah. There's no such thing as evil, etc. It's all about what you say. You define reality. Well, that's a pretty heavy burden to bear for someone. Imagine that. Imagine telling a kid growing up that you define reality. And I'm not against you know, our children going up and pursuing and to reach their full potential on different levels in different ways. But you know what? The education they get, we're going to die and the brain's going to rot in the ground. The money we get, the house we get, someday we'll go somewhere else. Whether it be we die or we get put in a nursing home or whatever. Or we have some horrible accident and a few blood vessels have broken in the process in the brain. Then what? Then what? What defines reality? And see, there's a limitation to the reality, small case r, that the world presents to us that says, oh, if you have all this stuff, you can be secure. No. No. In the church, we celebrate the martyrs, as we know. 
And martyrs are not people who were like masochistic and crazy. But they were so in love with Christ and that to deny Christ was like to de- deny that I need oxygen to breathe. I remember, you, you all know that I, I have gone in the past into the prisons and the jails and I'm starting to go back in there again. Hope they know the difference between me and the people incarcerated. But anyway, uh, when I you know, have, have gone in, one of the, you hear many great things from a lot of people. There's actually some wonderful people in jail, believe it or not. And a lot of them have more faith then I know for me, they've actually ministered to me in a lot of ways. But one of the things I heard from one guy was this great thing where uh, in their cell block, there was one guy who was an atheist. And he was arguing with people who were you know, um, committed to Christ. And he's going on and on about his reasons, thinking, you know, like he's, uh, well, most people today don't know who Bertrand Russell was. But uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and all these kind of guys. And finally, one guy who was listening to him very quietly, he said, I have a question for you. And to the atheist guy, and he says, yeah, what is it? He said, are you willing to die for your atheism? And the guy was taken aback. He says, I'm willing to die for my faith. Are you willing to die for this thing that you claim is absolute? And if you notice, by the way, atheists, they're so sure of themselves, they can't be wrong. You can't question the atheism. It's kind of like the way we talked about you know, Hitler and some of the cults where you're not allowed to question anything. And atheists throw out a lot of cliches as well. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to have our faith stretched and we don't struggle with doubts at times. But, but in real atheism, you're not to do that. And there, it reminds me, though, of a wonderful Jewish prayer. And by the way, the atheist guy was taken aback when that guy told him especially when the guy who said that stood up and he was bigger than him, <laughs> and so forth. But anyway, um, you know, this prayer that I, I have in this old Jewish prayer book in my office that says, God, teach us to doubt our doubts. Teach us to doubt our doubts. There are things beyond what we see, realities that are there, and are speaking to them actually doesn't necessarily create them, but they may uncover those realities, both good and bad, both good and bad. You know, that's why certain, certain issues, like in, in terms of sex and promiscuity, they have an effect. You think it's a shock that in satanic rituals, they're very promiscuous. Sex is involved. And it's interesting that the word orgy comes from the Greek word that means to be enraged. Out of control. Lust and anger actually have a, have a connection. It's interesting. But the realities, the realities beyond us. And the story, of, which we've heard millions of times, of this, Jesus goes to the other side of the lake, and it's obviously a Gentile land. And... <laughs> He sees, you know, these two guys demonized, and we know the story, and it's interesting. The people who recognize who Jesus really is, bracket the Virgin Mary, of course, but the people who know who Jesus really is are the people who are demonized, not the average person. The average, you know, the, the disciples are still learning who Jesus is, and they won't fully get it till the resurrection, and even then, it'll take Pentecost itself to finally seal that. 
So the evil powers know. They know. So Jesus casts out, the, and of course, the, this incredible story that Jesus you know, acquiesces to the request of the demons, look, if you're going to get us out, let us go into the herd of swine. And Jesus says, go, and we know the demons go into the swine, and they, quote-unquote, lose control. Or he speak on it. They, they go crazy, lose control, and they dive into the lake. And of course, that shows not only that it was a Gentile land, but there would be some humor for somebody of Jewish background, because, you know, you can't, in a kosher diet, you can't eat pork. Anyway, the demonized are healed. The village gets upset. They rush into town to tell, look, you've got to see what happened. Because we're concerned for our income, right? Right? This guy just ruined our sense of economy. Making money, right, for ourselves and so on and so forth. And they come to Jesus. And this is amazing. He casts out the, the demons. And they see, and I, I love Luke's little phrase, see the now healed, demonized, seating, sitting at the feet of Jesus, which means he's in the process of being taught by Jesus, trained by Jesus, and so on and so forth. And in his right mind, in his right mind. And they see this, and because it's not the, what they define as normal, they tell him, leave. Get out of here. Go away. And that's a culture that we have. But we are called to witness to that reality regardless of what people say. Now, I'm not saying we shove it under their nose and, and so on and so forth, but there is a sense of do we, can we give a good answer about the faith that is within us, to quote St. Peter? Can we respond? Can we say what it is when, when people say, what is it that motivates you, moves you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that's what happened with the martyrs because the martyrs weren't necessarily running out in front of the authorities and going, hi, I'm a Christian, you know, during the midst of horrible persecution. I know during the communist period in Russia where uh, a wonderful gentleman I knew who was doing business, this is before perestroika, obviously, uh, in Russia, and he would go on, when he was there, we went on a tour. And as they passed by many churches, the tour guy said, yeah, nobody really goes to church here. Only old people go to church, you know, and mostly old ladies. So he went to the Pentecost service. It was actually the Orthodox uh, Sunday for Pentecost. And to his total chagrin, it suddenly realized that a lot of these old ladies were young men dressed up as old ladies so the authorities wouldn't tag them. different kind of a drag show. And the interesting thing, uh, you know, today, I wanted to mention St. Procopius, because he's mentioned at the end of the wedding service, and I made a little point of that in the, in the bulletin. And I used to remember as a kid going, why, why do you mention a martyr in the wedding service? Because it's not only the idea, okay, the crown symbolizing martyrdom. And it is the idea that if you love somebody, it's a death to the ego, the ego-centered kind of lifestyle, a death to self-centeredness. You have somebody else in your life. You can't just do whatever you want anymore. 
whenever you want. It has to be a corporate kind of reality. But more so, it's not only that from a purely like interpersonal relating, but the fact that it is now God that defines what love is. It is God. And that there should be a love for each other that you're willing to literally give your life for the other person. Not just they're cute, they're this, they're that, or the other thing on some very external basis. And that kind of love can all be learned by God teaching us and seeing that in the person of his son who was willing to sacrifice himself for the good of the other. And that's why St. Procopius is mentioned. He's the first of the Christians to be martyred in the last great persecution uh, by the Romans, as it were, from 303 to 311. But that, that kind of love comes from God, and it is God who, who loves. And, and I think you all know this. Uh, in the Orthodox wedding service, there are no vows. There are no vows. Because to love like that takes God himself to be there in the situation. What happens when the couple comes to the church is they're prayed over, the way we pray over the bread and the wine, the way we pray over the church, to uncover, to show this bread and us to be the presence of Christ. And the bride and the groom are being prayed over in the same way. This is not just give a religious stamp, like somebody said to me, they're going to have some destination wedding. Oh, and they're going to have it at a church. And I said, why? <laughs> well, you know, it's nice. I don't know, you know. <laughs> it's nice. But why? Well, the reason has to do, ultimately, is the fact that it is God who defines what love is. And the martyrs witness. The word martyria means to be a witness to. I, like somebody in court, I wit, I'm a witness to this. I'm an eyewitness to God's love being this way. In a world that, that it's, it's just about whatever impulse grabs you. Whatever impulse grabs you. And not just sexually, sadly, but on a lot of other levels. On a lot of other, whether it be economically, politically, I don't care what it is. What it is. But for us, it's the lenses is Christ. So, anyway, anyway. So may the Lord bless us with this, this deeper awareness that God is ultimately, see, this, this is the last part I'm going to say, simply this. We're always worried about this and that and who's, who's you know, doing what and, and, and you know, what's going to try to control the world or, or whatever. But scripture makes it very clear that it is God ultimately that has the control. Nothing's going to happen without God allowing it. And God allows it not because he's going crazy, but because he has a plan to manipulate those events for the salvation and rebirth of the world. And we're the people that say, we will go along, Lord, with what you plan. We will go along because we see that reality is bigger than any politician, any scientist, 
who claims that all you see is all that exists and that's it. And we give ourselves over to this God who will not just waste us until we're dead and so forth. That even, and this is the, again, the thing with the martyrs and like relics, is that even in death, even in death, the corpses will exude the grace of God to the rest of the world. No politician can do that. No economist can do that. But God can.